who is keeping society running? It's lorry drivers. It's the food industry. It's farmers. It's the supermarket staff. It's hospital porters. We all know poverty kills. And we know that the effect of this is going to be heavy on the economy of our individuals. Just remember, everything we are telling the world to do is designed for the rich. You have to be privileged to do what you've done. Welcome to Secret Leaders Series 5, our special series recorded specifically for and about the current global crisis, covering both the business and the social impact of the coronavirus on society. Now, if, like me, you've been living with anxiety and concern for you, your family, your friends, your colleagues' future, then you're not only in good company, but you've come to the right place as we look to unpack in real time the impact that it's having across various industries. So to kick off this series, we're welcoming back one of our favorite guests, Ali Parsa, the founder and CEO of Babylon, the world's largest healthcare app headquartered in London, although international, tied in with supporting the NHS, who is one of the best placed people in the world to talk about some of the predicted health impacts of the virus, what he's seeing in his own industry of healthcare, and of course, how they as a company are responding. And joining him remotely is a good friend of mine up in Manchester, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, who's the author of three brilliant books. The last one, Feel Better in Five, was recently number one in the UK, whilst his brilliant book, The Stress Solution, is something I chose to read over the weekend to remind me of the good things we can do in times like these. Now, on top of that, his brilliant podcast, Feel Better, Live More, is the UK's number one in health and wellness, so he comes armed with a wide variety of expert insight about how to handle it on a personal level. And better yet, he's wearing a gilet to keep him warm too. How on brand, Rangan. <laughs> Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Ali, this is technically your third appearance on the podcast. And since then, you've surpassed as a company a £1 billion valuation after enormous growth and remarkably important funding rounds to help you scale your mission. So... If listeners want to hear your brilliant story, they can do that, or they can tune in and hear about your episode with Michael Acton Smith of Calm, which was about the future of mental health and physical health. But today, we're just going to focus on the COVID-19 impact. So before we do that, can you let any listeners who aren't familiar with the vision for Babylon um, and just let them know what it is, what you do, how you're executing, and any key highlights you want to share about the business just to get us started, Ali? That's very kind. Uh, as you said, uh, I wouldn't take much time on this, but we created Babylon about over uh, five years ago. At the time, I was uh, running a chain of hospitals, which is today, I think, Britain's largest chain of private hospitals that we built. We took it public, and the reason we got out of that is because what you understand very quickly is that, uh, and I'm sure Rangan can certified to that is the vast majority of people's healthcare needs have very little to do with hospitals. We spend some time there in average every 20 years. And then unfortunately, if you're unlucky towards the last uh, two years of our lives. So, and we sat back and said, can we do with most of the healthcare most people need what Google did with information? Can we make it accessible, affordable, and put it in the hands of every human being on earth? And if you dissect that, Accessibility now is much easier. As long as I can put most of the healthcare most people need on devices, most of them already have, that's highly accessible. And we today deliver healthcare to a third of the population of Rwanda just via their mobile phones. And I'm incredibly happy that since you and I last spoke, the government of Rwanda has now decided to create universal primary care for all of its citizens by giving them Babylon. 
The question is there is no accessibility without affordability. And unless you can make healthcare so cheap that everybody can afford it, then it becomes inaccessible whatever way you deliver it. And if you sit back and you dissect the costs in healthcare, they fundamentally sit in two pockets. They sit in salaries, two thirds of all the money we spend goes into doctors, nurses, or great healthcare professionals. And they sit, if you dissect it from diseases, in predictable, preventable diseases. So what all we do in Babylon to conclude is to build technologies and services that on one hand automate as much as possible so our doctors and nurses can focus at the top of their license, as they say, and see as many patients as possible. And on the other hand, try to monitor our members in order to hopefully predict what they do a bit sooner. Doing that, I think we've managed to both bring the cost and the accessibility significantly higher in our markets, but we're just beginning and there's a long way to go. I hope that's a fair enough summary. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very succinct summary that we expect from you by now because you probably had to uh, explain this many, many times in many investment pitches too. And I guess What's interesting is hearing you say it in, in those terms actually reminds me, Rangan, it's not, not too different from actually how you describe your own personal mission, although obviously a very different execution. So do you want to share um, you know, how you view your role in society in terms of giving accessibility to health information as well and how that kind of matches up from what you just heard? Yeah, I mean, it was fascinating hearing that actually from Ali. You know, I, I've been on the record many times to say about 80% of what I see as a GP is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles. So the bulk of what is coming in now, uh, certainly into my profession, is related to lifestyle. Now, I'm not putting blame on people and always say that, make it really, really clear. I get it, that life is difficult, life is stressful, people are working hard, they're underslept, they find it hard to eat good foods, you know, their jobs require them to sit down all day, so they're, they're finding it very, very hard to be active. But nonetheless, that is having an impact on the way that we feel. It's having an impact on our health. And I'm not just talking about things like type 2 diabetes and obesity, which are the common two diseases, if you will, that people talk about when we talk about lifestyle. I want to expand it much beyond that. I'm also talking about mental health problems, you know, anxiety, depression, things like migraines, gut problems problems with people's libido, hormonal problems, as well as things like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, stroke, and even dementia, all of these things, actually, there's a large part of them that have their roots in the way we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I guess what is similar between what Ali is saying, what I'm saying is, is that a lot of what comes in to see us doesn't need to. Actually, I would say, from my perspective, it can be dealt with in other ways. It's about how do you give people that information that inspires them, that educates them, that empowers them so that they can take control of their health. And then you've heard me say this before, but my mission, I've realized, and it's taken me a few years of being in the media and being out there with a public profile to really figure out what my mission is. But my mission is to help, over the course of my career, help 100 million people realize that they can be the architects of their own health. And I do that by not talking down to people. I do that by not telling people what to do, but by hopefully sharing inspiring stories, hopefully bringing the science to life for them in a way that they want to engage with. My goal is when every patient who comes in to see me, that they walk out feeling inspired to go, hey, you know what? I didn't realize that I can take control of my life. And if I make these small changes, 
I can have a big impact on the way that I feel. That's what I do in my consultation room. But I say with my podcast, I want every single listener at the end of that conversation to feel inspired to go out and make one change at least in their life. Or whether it's with my books, the goal is always the same. Deliver information in a simple way that people can understand that's true to the science, but don't blind them with science. Make it really, really accessible and mean something to them. And I think when you do that, people want to make those changes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think actually, you know, this what's reminded me again, you know, talking about prevention for a moment. Um, Ali, in a previous episode with us, you know, you talked about and said very rightly, we don't actually have a healthcare system, we have a sick care system. So, you know, in relation to uh, COVID-19, I guess perspectives from both of you, and we'll start with you, Ali, you know, how do you think that statement is playing out right now in terms of having a sick care system? Well, unfortunately, COVID-19 is a virus and a virus makes people sick. And therefore, what we do really need here, to a degree, is a sick care system. What we did find out, though, unfortunately, across the globe, is how underprepared our systems were to deal with something that many have been predicting for a very long time. And uh, when you look at some societies, like Singapore, on how well prepared they were, and how they knew exactly what their policy is going to be. They executed it immediately, and therefore how many lives they managed to save and how quickly they managed to go back to some semblance of normality, although they are being incredibly careful. And you compare that with many, many countries in the world who did not have either the resource or the capability, and unfortunately we are seeing this thing going to unfold much worse uh, across the globe. So, so this is one place where the sick care really needed to be at its top game. And I'm not sure whether the science is there that said, if you took very good care of yourself, you were less susceptible to this. Although we are seeing that those with chronic conditions are more susceptible. I don't want to, at times like this, blame people themselves for falling for this virus. The tragedy is too big to blame anybody. I think that's completely fair. And I guess the, the angle that I was really suggesting on the prevention rather than a cure and, you know, healthcare and sick care comparison is just like you said, as, as nations, some are so well set up in case there is something because they take on board like a preventative approach of the just in case, worst case scenario, how does this play out? And others aren't. Ali just brought up Singapore and uh, Hong Kong has obviously been in a similar situation. I mean, how, how much do you think the experience of going through something like SARS has in terms of the actual reaction to that? Like, there, there is one argument to say that because the Western nations haven't necessarily been through something like this in recent history, we, we haven't been that well prepared for that. Is that something that you agree with? I totally agree. I mean, in terms of Singapore, there is clear evidence that post-SARS, the government of Singapore asked some of the world's experts to visit it. It interviewed many. It came out with a plan. It kind of published it and then put it in a drawer, uh, ready to bring it out whenever they needed it. And Rangan, in terms of uh, behaviours, I suppose, it's a really interesting thing to ask you because you spend a lot of time researching books, communicating uh, with people about wellness, wellness practices and best practices for prevention, which ultimately will come down to taking personal responsibility and, um, and behaviour change, which is some of the hardest bits, right? So what are your perspectives at the moment on how societies are, behavior, are behaving in relation to government rules? 
Yeah, I mean, just to touch on what you said initially, Dan, which was, you know, this whole idea of prevention versus cure. There's a, there's a really, there's quite a nice comparison here, isn't there? That in healthcare, let's let's go to pre this new uh, SARS uh, CoV two coronavirus that is currently, you know, bringing the world to a halt. Before that, we were talking a lot, weren't we, about prevention is better than cure and how we're going to save a lot of money but it's very hard for people to spend money on prevention because when you prevent something it's hard to convince you that oh you would have got that had you not done this preventive action whereas when you've got something you say oh this is costing this much i mean of course there are models and economic models that can predict that but there's a slight bit of dissonance where we're like yeah okay fine whatever but i'm not convinced that was going to be different and i feel there's a nice parallel here I should rephrase that, not a nice parallel. There's an interesting parallel in that people have predicted this pandemic. You know, Bill Gates in 2015 in his TED Talk mentioned this. I spoke to Professor Davie Stridhar, Professor of Global and Public Health, just this morning on my podcast about her perspective. She's been, she's been one of the best people to follow on Twitter at the moment, I think, about this in terms of government policy. And I, I posed that question to her as well, this whole interesting idea that we could have spent in the past millions or even billions preparing ourselves for this, yet we haven't. And we're now going to have to probably spend trillions with the economy crashing and all kinds of things that are going to happen because of this lockdown. It's always that seesaw. It's, it's about trying to persuade people that actually it is important to take preemptive action and prevent things happening in the future. So that's, I guess that's one perspective that I have on that because I do find it fascinating when so many different people predicted this, why it certainly appears, certainly from what I can tell, it does appear certainly here in the UK that we might not have been quite as prepared as we could have been. And I agree with what you guys have said before, that the countries who've had, who've been bitten once, you know, they got SARS and they saw the, the rapid spread, they saw the consequences, they have been generally ready for action this time. And I hope this plays out in a way that we can minimize mortality, we can minimize suffering as much as possible. And then hopefully beyond that, because a lot of people are saying this will not be the only viral pandemic we're going to face, there's going to be more. And so for maybe for the UK, and maybe for, you know, other big Western countries like the US, this will be like you've been bitten now, you understand how quickly viruses can spread, and how quickly they can cause ill health and mortality around the world, maybe we'll be better prepared uh, next time. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description.
Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Ali, I wanted to know, um, and this is obviously springing it on you if you actually have the data or some insights, but you know, what kind of data you've been seeing um, from Babylon um, like literally since the start of the pandemic and I guess especially as it's been creeping in the UK as well. And if you can talk a bit about obviously your, um, your work with the NHS there and, and how you help power the video services. I think the data we saw was right at the beginning, there was a massive surge in use where a lot of the healthcare delivery is done through physicians that work out of uh, little offices on their own. And as soon as the problem arose, many of those offices had to be closed or the patients stopped going in fear of catching something, was a significant shortage of clinical resource. So on one hand, you had the supply fall down significantly and you had the demand go up significantly. So we saw that very quickly. We then kind of thought that the solution you have to put in there is one to protect that clinical resource. So we came up with a solution that said, hey, if you need to check yourself with an algorithm, do so. And people call it AI. Frankly, that piece is not. It's just simply a decision tree. We just don't have enough data to be able to create a proper AI solution for uh, making a decision on this. But we said that, look, we first put that in your hand. If you decide to self-isolate, and remember, this is going back two to three weeks before the government or most countries have started giving the advice for confinement. If you decide to self-isolate, instead of giving you a doctor every time, we'll set up a live chat with a clinically monitored but non-clinician who will basically keep you at ease and give you all the information you need. And we also put in place a monitoring. So we monitor you, your temperature, your mood, because mental health, it's a significant issue where you're being cooked inside the house. And then only then, when you need to talk to a doctor, or unless you choose to, we will connect you to a doctor. And in very rare cases, we will send you to a facility, to a hospital. And what we saw was as soon as we put that system in place, the demand of our doctors almost overnight went down because once people saw that they have a way to reach doctors when they need to and have somebody to ask questions when they need to. So our waiting time, which always used to be in minutes, had gone up to about hours and it's now come back to an hour or two. And, and so that's one thing we saw. The second thing we saw is when we told people that our doctors are in huge need, what we saw was an incredibly good behavior out of people. So we saw many people just didn't call doctors for no reason. They went through the chat service or live chat service or self-monitored themselves, but they tried a lot to save the resource for those who needed most. That model worked so well for us that we are now expanding it 
so together that will be about 5% of the population of UK now as their first point of call are being advised by those hospital organizations to go through our COVID-19 solution before they put pressure onto the system. We're trying to achieve the same in the United States where we're going from almost zero market share in the last few weeks to aim for the same 5% of the US population. In the US, our focus is primarily the Medicaid patients who are the most in need, the lowest uh, financial capability, who are often in a system like United States, the most ignored. And then in Brazil, we are coming up with uh, the same solution, but a mass for one of its most populous states. So we're seeing a huge uptake of the kind of things that in the past used to take months of debates and discussions happening over days and nights. Ali, I guess with the, the wealth of data you guys are seeing, your new execution to be first mover and uh, first port of call when you get sick, which will reduce uh, waiting times for people and also help give people a bit of calm and sense of, um, of faith that they're going to get seen in the right circumstances. If you add that kind of change in behavior caused by a, a global pandemic, like something so catastrophic that has to change and shift behavior, and then you also think, Rongan, to some of your points that you were talking about, you know, in terms of how we create change. What do you guys see as uh, the world we find ourselves in from a healthcare perspective at the end of this? So, you know, predicting six or 12 months out, like, how do you think people will um, behave? And I guess, you know, very different perspectives between the two of you. So, um, you know, we'll start with Rongan more on the ground level, I guess. One of my big concerns at the moment is you know, the, the, the measures being taken to prevent the spread of this virus are yeah pretty severe. There's no question about that. Now, I understand why they're being recommended, you know, social distancing, not traveling unless absolutely necessary, staying at home, all these kind of things, only going to the supermarkets once a week. These things are very, very different from how we typically would live our lives. And Whilst on one hand, we're going to reduce the spread of the virus, hopefully to the degree where we're not going to overload the NHS and they're going to be able to cope with the people who are going to need intensive care and ventilators. I worry about, on the other hand, what is the consequence of shutting down society in terms of mental health problems, depression, anxiety, isolation, the sort of things that we were already struggling with in society two months ago, even one month ago, pre lockdown we were struggling with these and although there are many you know positive solutions people are connecting online you know all kinds of inventive solutions are are sort of coming up to help us in our workplace help us in our personal life i do worry about the consequences of this and i actually spoke to one of my uh, best mates who's actually uh, an a and e consultant in france and i spoke to him a few days ago to say how's how's it all going and he said look wrong and it's interesting that we are seeing more and more uh, patients coming in with COVID-19, and some of them are pretty sick, actually. But what's interesting is that I'm seeing probably three or four for every COVID-19 patient, patients who are coming in with suicidal thoughts or anxiety or panic relating to everything else that's going on around it. And of course, I'm not saying we shouldn't be taking the measures we're currently taking, just to be super clear. But I, I do think at some point in the future, we'll we'll have to look back and go, okay, we saved X amount of lives, which was great, but how many lives did we 
you know, it's very hard to say this in a, in a PC kind of way, you know, how many, how many healthcare problems did we start or did we exacerbate and how many lives have been lost by the consequences of social distancing and isolation? You ask what, what's going to be like in the future? I would like to think my optimistic side, and I am an optimist, is that, as Ali said before, although you know the virus is no uh, respecter of social status, right? It can affect any one of us, right? But I do think we'll find out when we do that when we do that analysis. You know, as we already know, people who've got other chronic long-term conditions seem to be more at risk of not not getting the virus, but having serious consequences once they do get it. Now, it is not unreasonable for me to say that some of these chronic conditions that are putting people at increased risk are related, as I said right at the top, to our collective modern lifestyles. So I'm not putting blame on anybody uh, at the moment. I'm just saying I, I hope that our health becomes even more important to us at the end of this. And people think, hey, you know what? I didn't realize that society could shut down like that and that I might have to be in my own house for four weeks looking after myself and I need a level of resilience and I need a level of health and well-being to make myself bulletproof, as it were, to whatever the world throws at me. So I think, I, I certainly hope there's an opportunity for people to go, actually, you know what? I maybe took it for granted. I thought life was super convenient. I could get whatever I wanted from my phone at any time. I didn't have to worry about fitness I'm hoping that we realize, wait a minute, health is important because we don't know when the next time this is going to hit. So that's one thing I certainly hope. And I also hope, and this is something I'm going to be doing a lot more through my social media feeds and my podcast over the next few weeks, is to try and teach people in isolation, what can you do to look after yourself? Because there's, much, there's so much that you can do. And in fact, many people say they don't have time, or in the past they said they don't have time. Of course, you know, what, what is it? Parkinson's law, work expands to fill the time available to it, right? So we can all be working from home and literally be working from 7am till 11pm if we want to, but we need to create discipline. We need to create routines. And we could put in place practices right now in our own house that can mean that we come out of this thing fitter than we've ever been before. You know, I'm doing many things with respect to that. One simple thing I'm doing is I'm doing five minutes of skipping every day. Because I know if only five minutes of skipping every day, as well as anything else I want to do, you know, and I'm probably going to increase that to 10 minutes soon. If I do that consistently day in, day out for the duration of this crisis, I should probably be fitter than I've ever been before four months down the line. And I think there's all kinds of opportunities for people if they take them. So yeah, that's that, some of my perspectives on, uh, on things at the moment, Dan. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, that is. Um, I guess, Ali, um, I have a, a, a you know, well, I've got the first side of that question anyway, which is what do you expect to be the difference in terms of how people um, access Babylon in the future? And I've got a wider question on that that we can touch on in a bit. But then also I'm interested in how you as a company have had to adapt because, you know, I've been to your office a few times. It's a big office in Chelsea. You've got a lot of people there. It's all very focused around the values, you know, the nature that you bring in. And it's definitely a, it feels like definitely a physical office space. Um, so how have you as a leader had to adapt to your team going fully remote and how do you think they have? I think the effect on our business, it's still too early to know, but I think the effect is going to be profound. I think those, I mean, we were never about being a telemedicine business. We always thought that you need to have an end-to-end -end solution that actually it's almost everything we ever 
prepared for was for this moment where we saw that how we could use technologies and AI to allow people to self-care, how we can put them into the most appropriate care at the right time and preserve as much of our clinical resource as possible. Because if you want to make healthcare accessible to all, and if there is shortage of doctors, then by definition, everything has been designed to do that. So I think that today, almost being a telemedicine company will become yesterday's story. So all these companies who do nothing but telemedicine, when the whole world is going to do telemedicine, what are they going to do, right? Where they need to like, uh, and the same will be true about those who want to go to the past. I think they're going to find it very difficult to argue. I remember just before this crisis, I was in a conversation and somebody was telling me that it is unsafe to see patients remotely, right? And just because of that conversation that we were having, as soon as this thing happened, that very same person called us and said, hey, can I get your technology to see my own patients? Uh, because I have no other way of doing it. So I just think that people are going to, the prejudices they have, the Luddite way they used to work is going to change. Uh, I hope. That's my hope. But listen, I'm going to go back to what Rangan said about the unforeseen consequences of this. We all know poverty kills. And we know that the effect of this is going to be heavy on the economy of our individuals. Just remember, everything we are telling the board to do is designed for the rich to do. You have to be privileged to do what you've done, which is to be in a room on your own for two weeks. The vast majority of the planet does not have a room on their own. They live with their mothers, their fathers, their children in a large communal houses, right? And washing your hand 10 times a day, how many members of our society don't have running water, right? So much of what we're talking about is coming from a point of view of privilege in some of the richest countries in the world. Just look at what happened to India when we told people go back home and do not work. If you live day in, day out on the wages you receive, what do you do when you don't have that wage? So I think I think we're going to see many, many unfortunate consequences of the decisions we made, but I think the decisions we made, and that's why the government, by the way, I hear so many backseat commentators selling how the government, how bad they did this, how bad they did that, the other, and many now. Many governments across the world did badly. But I can't say that about most European governments, including ours, because they were... I mean, I was sometimes witnessing this. They were struggling day to day to balance the consequences of bad things. And by and large, they reacted to the science as opposed to the hopes. And they tried to do what they believed it was the right thing to do. Well, I wanted to uh, come on to a little bit, right? Ali, actually, if you're willing to, to share, is, you know, some of the you know, the reality, some of the human costs that are happening. And just a little bit from, from both of your perspectives, you'll have some insights. Now, um, Ali, I, obviously, we really appreciate you still coming on the show this afternoon because um, obviously your father just passed away from from COVID. So um, are you willing to share just a little bit about um, the circumstances and just give us some real real human capital insight, I guess, so relevant for someone in your position as well? Sure. I mean, it's a pleasure to come because... If anything, 
my father passing away showed how urgent this work is and how important it is to give anybody anything as little as we can contribute. He was in his early 90s, uh, but very fit, very, uh, very knowledgeable. And he's a man who survived partisan wars, radical movements, political internment, revolutions. He was an entrepreneur and an engineer, an incredible, and my best friend, not just my father. So passing away, him passing away was incredibly hard. What was harder was the speed at which this disease hit him and at speed at which he went from his home to a hospital and then to isolation and to the inhumanity of spending the last three days of his life being able, without being able to talk to his family. And I remember putting, as he was going into ICU, he said to me that, son, of course I'm gonna come out, but I wanna talk to my grandchildren one more time. And I taped that conversation. And in there, he says to my grandchildren that this crisis will pass like every other, but never forget it. And just remember you come out of this wiser people that you went into it. And I took that advice is so true, not just for my children, but for our society as a whole. We just cannot forget the heavy, heavy, heavy price we paid and just come out of this as we went into it. It just is absolute madness. He was a deep humanitarian, as I said. He suffered political prison because of it through his life when he was younger. He was a deeply humanitarian person. And he used to say, when you're this idiot's gonna understand, disease knows no xenophobia, and suffering knows no borders, this is gonna hit us all. And unfortunately, he died in Iran, not far from where we all heard about what happened in Iran. But people in China, people in, in, in Britain, people everywhere are not dying. And as Rangan quite rightly say, of every social background, and this is, and I think that's what we need to take away from us. One single determination I have, and I hope most of us will walk away, is his last, last word, which is just do not allow the world that we used to be take dominance again, and we should look anew of everything we're going to do. We pay too heavy a price for that, everybody. Thank you for sharing that. It's interesting you mentioned the Chinese disease. You know, before I heard that statement come from Trump last week, you know, I was saying to my friends, I think the greatest thing um, as an opportunity to come out of this in a, in a way is uh, realizing that, you know, borders are basically just made up, as in it's just some people in power one time that drew borders. You know, you look at Europe, it's just one landmass with hundreds of countries, you know, at the end of the day, that might be a beautiful scenario where people realize that stuff is increasingly meaningless and we're one connected society. And then, of course, on the flip side, you have someone like Trump specifically trying to create this xenophobic fear of calling it a Chinese disease, which kind of brings it back home. And I think to your, your father's point, it's so important to make sure that we do, we do learn the lessons and that we do change. Because this is just such a, a wonderful opportunity um, for us all to review what we do and how we behave. Can I say one other thing, Dan? Something that really annoys me, and I hear that often, is people saying, ah, but these are the elderly die. And they would have died anyways, in a, in a couple of ways after that. I just, and it brings out some of the 
fundamental problems we have in our society with getting old. If one thing comes out of this, and a great thing we did, is we collectively as a society decided to look after everybody, but especially at the time that we knew our elderly are the people who are most in danger and in need. And I hope we go back to, we keep that. And when we come out, remember one third of our elderly are lonely in their homes. A big chunk are suffering from mental health issues. A big chunk are depressed and are suffering in silence. I completely agree. And, you know, a lot of these things uh, come down to cultural behaviors, right? So um, am I right in thinking, Ronga, in, in India, like it's uh, far, more, far more common for, you know, families to live with their grandparents and they get old, they stay with them. And, you know, like, you know, you, even you and your experience living with your, uh, your father before he passed away. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think generally speaking in India, that that is common. Of course, things are changing now as it becomes more westernized and more middle class. If I look at my own life, you know, I live uh, in Cheshire in South Manchester. My brother lives one minute away from me. My mother lives by herself five minutes away from me. That was, you know, my, my father was ill for many years. He died seven years ago. You know, Ali, I, I mean, you know, I had a tear in my eye when you were you were sharing your story. It's so, so poignant. And I think there's so many things which really connects with me as you said that. You know, when you just said he was a uh, he was in his early 90s, but in really good health. You know, that's not the story that's playing out in the media. That's not what we're being that's not what we're with we're being taught to think about. We're thinking we're thinking, rightly or wrongly, I'm not saying the media are doing this intentionally. A lot of people are thinking, as you say, about oh, those elderly who actually oh they're going to die anyway they're not doing so well well it sounds like your father was in excellent health and actually this thing quickly got him and took him and just to even hear that perspective that he wanted to record for his grandkids i mean i was literally thinking as i heard that straight after this call two things i thought i'm going to do i'm going to go talk to my kids who are downstairs at the moment and say to them the same thing this will come and go like all crises and you you know you'll you'll gain a lot of wisdom on the other side of this and also thought, you know what, my mum's five minutes away. I'm not, I was going to go around, long story, but she lives by herself and there's no one who can go around at the moment and she needs help getting her food. So I'm actually going to go around and take all the necessary precautions. But instead of going late this evening, you know what, I'm going to go straight after this call because it's just a nice reminder that these things are so important. And I, and I absolutely agree for all the tragedy that will no doubt happen throughout the coming weeks and months, there will be lots of valuable lessons that we can learn. And I hope we pay attention to them. You know, we pay attention at the moment, we're thinking who is keeping society running, right? It's lorry drivers, it's the food industry, it's farmers, it's the supermarket um, staff, it's hospital porters, it's the rubbish collectors, it's the carers, you know, people who typically have not been valued in society. These are the guys who, when literally everything is going down, they're keeping society running. And if they stop, if the rubbish collectors stop, if farmers stop growing food and sending it to supermarkets, if we think things are bad now, they will be a lot worse if those things start to break down because then you'll potentially risk social unrest and anarchy on the back of those things. And so, I mean, I have never been more grateful for my life than over the last week or two. And you said, Ali, before, we're, we're, many of us in, on this conversation are talking from a position of privilege. Yeah, you know what? I've been so acutely aware of that recently. I think my kids are, are off school, they're at home. We're lucky to have a garden. We're lucky to have 
space in our house where we can all get our own space if we want it, if we're getting on top of each other. Not everyone's got that luxury. In fact, most people in the world do not have that luxury. So actually, isolation in this way is really interesting. I heard um, Terry Waite, if you remember Terry Waite, the, uh, the hostage negotiator who in the 80s was, was, I think he was captured in Beirut and kept for about four or five years in isolation. And he wrote an article in The Telegraph this weekend. And you read it and it puts things in perspective because he couldn't see another human for I think four or five years. He could go to the toilet once a day. He didn't have books, he didn't have music, he certainly didn't have the internet, and he survived. And he wrote books in his head in isolation. And I think perspective is key. I think this, is, this whole scenario is giving us all perspective. That sort of perspective makes me think, what on earth am I complaining about? Or what am I, am I concerned about? This is frankly luxury compared to what Terry Waite went through. So I think perspective is useful. And I'm not demeaning people's experience. You know, if you have suddenly lost your job overnight or your ability to feed your family, I totally understand. I'm not at all saying that that isn't really, really difficult and challenging. But I'm just saying that actually, I think all of us individually, if we pay attention, can learn so much about society, but also learn a lot about ourselves. And I think that's the big opportunity that lies in front of us, and I hope we all take it as much as possible. I want to I want to um, start to wrap up the interview a little bit by um, just just bringing it back to business for a second. Um, and and Ali, look, obviously the uh, assault on our health isn't really the only thing affected by our pandemic, guys. We all talked about it, right? Ultimately, our companies, our jobs, our financial security, everything's really greatly threatened at the moment. Ali, I'm just going to presume, but correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, Babylon's uniquely positioned. You haven't had to furlough uh, a big bunch of staff and you're back in like business as usual or growing or give us some perspective. And then the other side of that is, you know, what advice do you have as a leader who has been through, you know, like you say, you're in your 50s. We've talked a lot about your previous experience through different complicated histories in society. What's your advice to founders right now having to make those kind of tough decisions? Look, you're right that our business is in significant demand, but our clients, many of whom are struggling financially. So many of the projects that we were working towards at least has been postponed, right? Or at least we just can't talk about it with them because they are so overwhelmed. If you're a hospital group or a provider, your financial security is in danger. If you're an insurance company, particularly in the United States, um, your costs have gone over the roof. So the last thing you're going to do for absolutely correct reasons is to make a longer term commitment on some of the longer term projects we were working on. So you put in Dan a very good post early on on LinkedIn about a spare of time for the founders or for the CEOs. And I don't mean just founders or CEOs, but I think I expand that to anybody who needs to make decisions now about anything. The managers, the bosses, the CEOs, need to basically have the compassion to say, look, I'm going to save the company because if I don't save the company, I have put everybody's life in danger, uh, everybody's livelihood in danger, but I'm going to do so with the minimum amount necessary rather than the maximum to save to take advantage of this situation. Completely agree. Guys, uh, last question. What do you see as the biggest opportunity or reason for hope so we can finish on a high, please? We'll start with you, Ali. I think that we already are seeing uh, huge reasons for hope. The way we adapted as companies, as human beings, as individuals, the kindness we showed each other, 
They helped me show each other. I put something about my father passing away. I got hundreds and hundreds of messages from people, some of them I don't even know, and how kind and uh, they were. I think that is one, the adaptability, the agility, the kindness, the humanity, humility of our societies that came out. The second is, I think just as we saw post-Second World War, as we saw post-First World War, as we saw uh, less post-First World War, but more Second World War, as we saw post-many crises that our societies have gone through, something amazing will come out of this, and it'll be criminal if we allow it not to. We paid a far too heavy a price in lives of beautiful people that we should now demand, demand that when we come out of this, we behave, we act, we do differently rather than allow the old system to take over. Completely agree. And Rongan? Yeah, I mean, very similar, really. I think this could be an amazing opportunity to learn about ourselves, an opportunity to learn about what's truly important in our life, our opportunity to learn how important compassion is to treat every single person with respect, things that we're now, many of us have started to do now in a way that possibly we didn't do before, value those jobs in society that maybe we weren't even aware of before, and we certainly didn't pay them enough or value them enough. And I think on an individual level, Dan, I would say, ask yourself, what are you doing at the moment? What are you doing with this time? Are you distracting yourself with that time? Or are you using that time to get to know yourself better? And, and understandably, some people are scared and they're afraid. But do we distract ourselves with Netflix for three hours in the evening or YouTube for three hours in the evening? And again, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But when we distract ourselves, we are not allowing ourselves the opportunity to go inward and actually learn about ourselves. What are those feelings that are coming up? Because I don't believe, actually, that these are necessarily new feelings that are coming up within us. The system is being stress tested. We are being stress tested. So if you have a hamstring issue that only comes up when you're running, if you spend your whole life walking, you never know you've got a hamstring problem. You only know it when you're stressing your body in the running. And I feel that's what's happening with many of our emotions at the moment, is we're stress testing our system. And what are these inner emotions that are coming out? Are we feeling calm? Are we feeling panicky? Because if we pay attention, there is a huge opportunity to learn about ourselves here. And I really hope we take it. As well as that, Dan, can I just give some advice to people listening who might be struggling at home at the moment? Because there's a lot of information out there about what people should be doing. And I think sometimes it can be overwhelming saying, oh, I should be doing yoga, I should be doing meditation, I should be doing breathing, I should be doing a, a cold shower. And I think, you know, we're seeing all these things on social media and all of them may have merit. And I really do think that this framework that I'm about to say is very useful for all of us individuals, couples, or families, think about splitting up your health into three areas, mind, body, and heart. Do something for at least five minutes a day on each one. Mind is mental health, so that could be breathing, it could be journaling, it could be doing something creative. Do something each day for five minutes at least for your physical health. That could be skipping for five minutes, dancing for five minutes, yoga for five minutes, just moving your body in some way. And then finally, do something for five minutes each day for your heart. That's about connection, human connection. And whilst that's been taken away from us, make sure each day you're phoning a friend or you're Skyping your elderly relative or you're having a virtual coffee meeting with your buddies. 
And I think that just simplifies things. If you do those three things each day, give yourself three ticks and go, you know what, I've won today. I think that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Rangan. And Ali, I think I think in respect to um, your your father, um, you know, so much respect to him. And I think the best way that we can finish this off is with uh, actually Persian, I believe, proverb, which is this too shall pass. Next week on Secret Leaders. I feel that if we are going to get through this, we are going to get through it with integrity. And if we're going to go down, we're going to go down in like a flame of glory that we've done everything we can to deliver fabulous experiences and to extend runway as best as we can. So I'm evading answering the question because I actually don't know how confident I feel. That was a snapshot of next week's awesome episode with Rachel Carroll of Koru Kids and Bethany Kobe of Tech Will Save Us, who are two of the most successful female founders in Europe, but also mums running businesses during COVID-19 with parents and kids as their customers. So if you're coping at home with work and running your children's education program at the same time, next week's episode is especially for you. Now, this episode is dedicated to Ali's father, Faridun Parsadast, who, as you heard in this episode, passed away last week from COVID-19, and indeed all the people and families impacted by this pandemic. Our thoughts are with you all during these times. Now, we're going to be trialling a new, shorter second episode on Sundays called The Lowdown here on Secret Leaders. Don't worry, nothing new to subscribe to. It'll just pop up in your player on Sundays, which will feature some of the top journalists, economists, fellow podcast hosts and thought leaders in the space, unpacking their take on the business and startup world of the last week. So if you're looking for a place to stay up to date with the main initiatives moving the country forward during COVID-19, our Sunday episodes of The Lowdown is the place for you. Tune in or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, editor, Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer, Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we will add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.